So yeah, should we just dive into something while we're waiting for our turn? Or, alternately, there's this really interesting sports story um, it, where a hockey player, uh, a black hockey player and a white hockey player were about to fight, and then the fight didn't happen, um, and the white hockey player asked the black hockey player if he had uh, slipped on a banana peel, and so now there's like this big controversy in the NHL of like whether he was being racist or not and what the punishment should be. Um, didn't this just happen in soccer too? I remember listening on NPR, like two, like two separate incidents in, uh, England. Or one was in England. One might've been in like, I don't know, somewhere else. So clearly maybe I shouldn't be the one to talk about it, but it was a similar kind of thing. It was two, like within a week of each other, two big name soccer players got in trouble for, you know, basically making, uh, racist remarks to players on other teams or their own team even. I well, feel this like one's that's actually... a semi-regular occurrence in the European hockey or soccer leagues. Is it? I'm sure it is. Yeah, I always hear Spain, Italy always get in trouble for that. It's because Europeans um, are basically uh, racist. That seems to be the conclusion. Right. Well, of course, we all know this. But I think what makes this hockey one really interesting is that, like, uh, you know, first he got suspended for a game, um, and. He, you know, people just kind of assumed he had said some sort of racial slur, right? And it turns out he asked the guy if he slipped on a banana peel um, after the guy, like, fell down on the ice to end a fight, right? Um, But the thing is, so, like, there's obviously this racial history of, uh, you know, monkey and banana references as incredibly racist references to to black people, obviously. Uh, And especially, like, in the game of hockey, which is, you know, a very, very white sport still, and there's, like, big history of racism, but it's also, there's like a, there's sort of a hockey tradition, like to make fun of people who like, you know, quote unquote, slip on the ice to avoid getting into a full fight, you know? Uh, and like that, that guy's argument, he's saying like, you know, he, he wasn't being racist. He was like, you know, trying to chide this guy for not fighting. Uh, and so it's an interesting, like, you know, is this like a common, uh, colloquialism among hockey players? Oh, I slipped on a banana peel. I don't know if banana peel is the common <laughs> term, but it is common to, like, make jokes about why a guy fell... Because, you know, in hockey, if you don't... Like, they stop the fight as soon, soon as someone falls over, right, is the rule. And so, you know, if you don't want to fight, you, oh, you fall over really quickly. And so, you know, hockey being that hyper-masculine sport, you know, this kind of thing, it's a long-honored tradition to, you know, give the guy a bunch of ish if he, you know appears to dive to end the fight, right? So, conceivably, you know, in, in that sense, slipping on a banana peel, you know, is would be a comical way to fall over, as depicted in many cartoons, and you could see how it's not racist, but also given the, uh, um, you know, the same Deadspin article notes that a pair of black players uh, a couple years ago in Canada had bananas thrown at them while they were on the ice in what was clearly meant to be a racist gesture, so there's also that. This article kind of makes the interesting point that, you know, so the NHL ended up suspending the guy for one game, uh, and the article is kind of somewhat facetiously, but somewhat seriously arguing that, like, it's a perfect suspension um, because it's really a warning saying, like, look, it, you can really argue about whether this is racist or not, but if something is that close to racist, you just don't say it, you know? There's a million other things you could have said in that, like, instance. Uh 
And I don't know. I mean, I, I it's kind of an interesting argument, I guess. Has the offending player said anything since the suspension? You know, I haven't looked into it that deeply. I mean, my guess would be he has said something to the record about not wanting to be racist. I mean, I assume, um, because even if you are racist, that's, you know, what you do in today's media environment. Um, but you know, that's a good question. I don't know. I only read this article this afternoon and thought, Hey, that'd be interesting to talk about. So we well, hit- it's that, well, no, I was going to say, there's really kind of two ways <laughs> to go with this. One is it's kind of interesting to argue, like, you know, was that a racist comment or not? You know, there's a it's kind of a fruitful, it's an interesting argument about, like, you know, where John Lennon's history of racial appeals, et cetera, et cetera. But there's also kind of a, an interesting discussion to be had about the, like, uh, the sort of punishment side, you know, like, um, is, you know, if he has plausible deniability that it's not racist, like, can you really punish someone for saying something that's, like, potentially, you know, racist um, or these kind of things? You know, there's there's two incredibly mm-hmm. fruitful avenues we could go down. I, I think the first question, well, the the way you put the the is this racist or not, I think that question in itself isn't that interesting. But the more interesting question is, like, the meta question above that, which is, how people talk about whether or not this is racist or not. Because this whole story, like, I'm just imagining, like, some sports talk radio hosts, like, screaming at each other about how ridiculous it is that everything's taken racist these days. How could this be? Do you think the guy really meant for it to be racist? You know, the the issue of, like, the person's in, does does someone's intent when they said what they said make it racist? Or does the social context and meaning of the words, regardless of the person's intent, make it racist? Or, like, what what makes some statement racist and something that you shouldn't say? Like, I think, I don't know, there's an there's some interesting stuff there, I think. Um, well, that's actually, I mean, I don't think I said it very, that's very well. Yeah. But the, uh, yeah, thank you, it is. Well, but that's actually, the article sort of ends with that. And they, like, why they're saying it was, you know, a good penalty is that the idea is, like, look, dude, we don't want to, you know, it's like, it's really impossible to like have an art or just like way too much work for, you know, an organization in this case to like have that argument about your intent and like whether it's intent that matters and blah, blah, blah. So like, just don't make like vaguely racist, you know, comments anymore. Um, but you're right. I think the intent question is always a huge one. Uh, and that's a good, I don't know. I felt like you had an opinion on it when you brought it up, but I don't feel like I heard that opinion come out. I, I have opinions. I, I don't have an opinion on this specific thing. I just just that that's um, when talking about racism, the normal everyday meaning of something being racist or not, uh, it comes down to individuals and their beliefs and their intentional actions, right? Um, did I mean to discriminate against so-and-so or... Obviously, like in sociology classes and as sociologists, when we talk about racism, we usually don't just mean that, you know, there's more the idea of systemic or institutional racism or racism as being a structural thing that it's not about whether or not that one person in that one situation really meant to, you know, imply some sort of racist belief or something. Um, But that's something that it's it's just really hard to talk about and this is a good example of that though like it, i think what you were getting at is like they're well, saying you know you can't like if they came down and like punished the guy you know really really harshly it would be uh, i don't know chris go ahead 
Well, I mean, it's it just seems to be the the classic sort of, and maybe this is too much restating what you just said. This classic dichotomy between people who are likely to be on the offending side, saying that racism is a matter of personal intent, and the intention is very important, versus uh, people more likely to be on the offended side, or or sociologists, I think, who understand that there's a sort of a cultural and historical process and context that matters for these kind of things. And I think Jesse's right. This case is really interesting because it's such a – the whole banana thing plays both sides of that argument perfectly because I could easily see someone saying it was obviously innocent and cheesy versus someone saying there was definitely racist intent here. And um, it's, yeah, and it's exactly the sort of thing – where um, it's the exact sort of like sub you could make this like subconscious argument about it. Like, why did that particular you know metaphor come to your mind when you were talking about this person slipping? Right. Because right? how often do you ask people if they fell on banana peels? Especially but, when you skate around on ice for a living. Right. I, I also <laughs> think part of it, though. I, I mean, part of it too is that like in some ways it's a success of of the anti racist movement that being considered racist is a really bad thing. It's um, a social death. Yeah. Yeah, but in some ways, it's it's kind of, you know, in one of those unintended consequence kind of things, like, because, the, I mean, like, it because being considered racist has become to be such, like, a horrible, horrible thing, now people, um, you know, it causes such a reaction that you can't really, like what was John was saying, it's so hard to talk about it, because you can't have, it's so hard to have an honest discussion about whether some individual saying or, or statement or something was racist, because then you know, it's like you're calling that person racist and it's this horrible thing, you know. It's it's hard for people to understand that, um, you know, again, the sort of sociological idea that racism is much larger than that and that, you know, it, every everyone does racist things, you know. It's a matter of being aware of that and working against it because it's, you know, right. in a really racist society, it's nearly impossible not to do racist things, Um Especially well, if you're not, you but, know, but what actively are, working against it. What are racist things is what I'm getting at. Like, what are right. racist things? The, you know, to most people, or to a lot of people, I think, uh, a lot of white people in particular, I'm guessing, what counts as a race? Saying you're not going to do racist things basically boils down to avoiding a, a, a small, limited set of code words and phrases that you're just not supposed to say. And, it, and really, like, as long yeah. as you talk around that, you know, like, you see, I really don't want to bring up the the Republican primary campaign right now and the stuff that <laughs> people are saying, but it's really hard not to. But like you hear how they talk around race, and they're not they're they're they're, they're evoking race, but they're not talking, so they're not being racist. What's racist right. in that? You know? But aren't you? Well, a couple of issues here. Um, and now I'm losing all of the articulateness I had. Um, the first one is I think the parameters of the debate, which I think, John, you're talking about, are very problematic in that the way you're kind of voicing a counterargument always cedes agency in the debate to the racist or the suspected racist. And part of the problem that I think Jesse was talking about is that the way in which we've come to talk about these issues has been effective on the one hand in establishing racism as a bad thing in all capital letters. On the other hand, has stifled some discussion that is probably necessary about the complexity of the issue where the discussion has never gone towards you know people of color <laughs> kind of determining the parameters of the debate and that's part of the problem right 
and the second issue is is the difference if you think there is any between a racist and someone who did something that is racist are we willing to to say that there's a separation between those two things yeah i mean if you live in a in a society where there is structural inequality between uh racial groups along racial lines uh is someone who just goes about their life <coughs> successfully in you know their their own comfortable white world are they a racist for just passively going along with the flow and whatever non-intentional non-conscious way they're contributing to reproducing a social order that is unequal and discriminatory right is that racist or are they only racist if they make a bad joke right or say something that's racist or like actively you know bring harm to <laughs> you know what i'm saying is is that is that kind right. of like what you're at i mean because that that's, that's part of it yeah definitely here's what newt gingrich said <laughs> he's no this is like news he just like this was just news today he said i will go to the naacp convention and explain to the african-american community why they should demand paychecks instead of food stamps wait whom are they demanding paychecks from <laughs> The there's man. so e much e everybody jesse god you know there's how... so much about that sentence that's delightful <laughs> i i too love that he will I i'm glad that newt understands that there is one meeting place that all black people in america go to at least once a year where you can speak to all black people as one group uh it's a really effective way of getting a message out i'm just amazed newt knows about it and last week uh rick santorum said that quote he doesn't want to make black people's lives better by giving them somebody else's money well, have you heard now? See, there's quite a controversy about this one, too. Oh, really? Because the day after this, uh, Santorum was in an interview and he was asked, you know, why did you say, you know, why when the question wasn't about race at all, did you say black people? And uh, at, at that time, he offered the excuse that he had just seen Waiting for Superman, the like pro charter schools documentary mm -hmm. thing. So he was thinking about the plight of of impoverished African-Americans. Um, but now, uh, you know, whatever, a week later, he's claiming that he, he didn't even say black. He said he started to say one word and then kind of <laughs> didn't. And then so it was really just kind of like blah. And like that. So it kind of sounds like black, but he blah people. It, it, yeah. it wasn't actually the word he said. <laughs> Though my favorite, I was reading somebody who's like, so what, what did he mean to say? Blonde people, you know, or like bland, like there's literally, there's nothing like it's, and it's such a ridiculous stretch, right? But now that's like, I was reading a piece this afternoon on one of those, like, you know, Huffington or one of the aggregate sources and, uh, people are legitimately having that argument. They're like, well, you can't call him racist just because you think you heard him say black, you know? And he's like, well, and then, you know, as somebody very eloquently pointed out, you know, arguing against that, well, you know, it, it, if a normal person is accused of saying something pretty racist and is asked about it the next day, they would probably say, oh, no, no, I didn't say something really racist. They wouldn't say, oh, yeah, I said that, but I said it for this, you know, and then all of a sudden he didn't say it and things like that. But uh, actually quite mirrors this NHL thing in that now he's trying to get in that sort of plausible deniability that he was really saying blah people. Mm, I don't think I, I don't think it too closely mirrors the NHL thing. Well, no, but I mean, I think it, it, it does in the sense that, like, you know, once the narrative became possibly about how he's racist, he's had to invent sort of this fantastical story 
um, about a magical word that doesn't exist that came out of his mouth because, again, like... But again, isn't that part of the problem? Isn't that indicative of the problem? That the way in which we talk about this is is kind of fundamentally flawed? Because even in the criticism, even in making fun of of the... of the things he says, the underlying assumption, the underlying feeling is that he's trying to get away with it, that he is a, an essentially intrinsically racist person, and, and we finally caught him. I think what Chris was saying, and, and, it, and, it, and it gets back, I think, a little bit to the point I was trying to make, is that you're focused so much on the words, like even what we were talking about there, uh, we're focusing on the fact that he said black people. You know what I mean? Well... Uh, and there's been an interesting flip around in I follow comedy a lot and, and of course I follow hip hop a lot and, and uh if you look at recent things that, that black rappers are saying and black comedians are saying, they kind of I mean they've always engaged with racist jokes as par for the course, uh or, or racist words and phrases and images and so on and so forth. There there is some argument, not too many people make it, that the insistence to find these phrases or issues, or whatever it is, at the, the insistence to define them as racist becomes part of the problem in that you're kind of imposing racism and race on the issue. And this is kind of a classic problem in, in the African-American community that a lot of black scholars have written about, the kind of dirty laundry problem, so to speak. So that's another interesting way Sorry, to take I don't, discussion. I don't quite understand that argument. Bring that by me again. That... It's kind of going back to my point about the agency and defining the debate here that um, typically the people who um, – th- this is the way the argument goes. Typically the people who who are f- first to kind of make claims about someone being racist are rarely people of color or communities of color, but it's, it's, it's white liberal or leftist activists. Okay. And and they do it in such a way that increasingly gets really problematic because they're they're imposing the idea that this is racist onto you know they're sort of speaking for the community that they're trying to defend but maybe they're doing more harm than good by stifling free speech by taking away agency whatever it might be I would I mean I I think that's a pretty sound argument overall I, I would kind of quibble with it in this particular case I mean and in some cases in general because like I don't. I mean, because sometimes you're not calling. I mean, I I think to ins like what's what I'm mean? equating calling out racism with some sort of like you know assumed defense of the African American community are not necessarily you know that it's not necessarily the same thing. Um, I, that that was horribly ineloquent. Uh, I have minor problems with that argument, is what I'm trying to say. But overall, I, I get it. But I was gonna say though, with this Rick Santorum thing. Uh, I just want to make it clear, because, John, you said something. Like, I don't personally think... I'm not personally part of this quibble. It's racist because he might or might have s- not have said this yeah, word. Yeah. Like, that's the argument going on. I think it's racist because he clearly, when he thought about a welfare recipient or anyone needing government assistance, he clearly instantly thought of a black person. Um, and he clearly knew it would be fine in front of the audience he was in front of to claim that black people are ruining our country by stealing all of our resources, right? I mean, like, that's why it's racist. Uh, the thing about so Rick Paul Santorum, was, though, oh, is that I don't think that last part about clearly he thought about the audience. He seems like the guy who just says stuff like this. But anyway, 
I mean, maybe, but, you know, if, if he... Dare were... we get too far into trying to figure out Rick Santorum? Well, no, here's the thing, though. Well, I if think, you just Google you know, Santorum, you'll figure it out. Right, but... Actually, but I got really, another thing. I, I really do think, though, he did know his audience and consider it, because if he were, say, brave like Newt and went to that NAACP convention, <laughs> I guarantee you that doesn't accidentally, quote-unquote, come out of his mouth. You know what I mean? Like, the fact that he was in front of what, if not, was... if. It, what was probably an all-white audience, and if it was not an all-white audience, at least well above 90% white audience, you know, that's where you can have these, you know, crazy slips of the tongue, right? Um, but, you know, again, had he been doing some sort of photo op at a prestigious charter school that took a bunch of kids from Harlem in or something because he likes waiting for Superman, you know, my guess is he wouldn't have made that same accidental slip of the tongue. Have something to say? You can leave us a message at 612-424-AGIL. That's 612-424-2445. Thanks from Sociology Improv, the podcast you accidentally click on when you're looking for sociological images. To turn the gaze inward, as we so often like to do... I don't want that my leave, the, leave the gaze alone. <laughs> yeah, dude. Why do you hate So gaze? there's this issue of... of um, oh, gaze. <laughs> Sorry. Jesse, you said that part of what Santorum said was racist because when he thought of someone who was on public assistance, I forget the exact phrasing, he immediately thought of a, a black person, right? Yeah. Yes. I mean, isn't that kind of what most of our students will do in a very well-intentioned way in any class on inequality? Right, yeah. And that's what I meant earlier when I was saying, like, we all, you know, everyone is part of this, like, larger thing of racism, right? And all, you know, participants. I think it's just a good thing to notice because everyone will be quick to... Santorum is one of the easiest possible targets for this. But I don't think if a student in a sociology class were to do it, they would get called down on it or that it would be understood as problematic in any way. Uh, so there's kind of a pedagogical note there. But I Yeah, but I think that's, like, one of the, like, defining features of our society is that there are people who instinctively hear that and go oh yeah that's right and people who like think there's a real problem with that and the people who think oh yeah that's right uh get can can get incredibly defensive and don't understand why there would be a problem with that i mean just look around of course that's the case look at the tv look at the you know this is this is like a taken for granted fact about the world to them and it's not racist to just say a taken for granted fact about the world you know what i mean like right that's that's what you're up against it's not like well people actually, are just wrong and they just said something wrong i, I actually sorry john to say that i had a, a student this past semester who will obviously remain nameless but uh who, who literally Outer, wrote come in, on. A, in, a, in a paper we had um t- to back up this viewpoint that you're <laughs> you're assuming people have or, or asserting that people have and we had um i had them read loic wakant's piece about how the mass imprisonment is just a functional equivalent of the ghetto through Jim Crow, through slavery, and this kind of sort of racial history of it. And uh, he wrote that that's not true at all. Uh, and the reason black people live in the ghetto or go to prison is because they're lazy and won't work. And if that's racial profiling, then so be it, because that's the way the world is. Um, so sorry, what you said just made me think of that. And yes, that that uh, attitude is, is quite alive. And well. So would you vote for this student for president? But that's not what I'm talking about. No. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you're always sorry. I just somebody. John's thing reminded me of a no. Yeah, I, I, those people are there as well, but it's also people who are. Oh, now we're extremely, those people. Just kidding. <laughs> no, I it's also people like, who are well, extremely yeah, sympathetic, who, well-meaning, right. essentially basing it on what they read as the data or the empirical situation that, of course, this affects these people. Well, and they're not likely not to get based off the data. I mean, well, yeah, for a lot of them, what they've read. Limited as it might be. So those are the people who I don't think ever get called on it. And, and that line gets to continue pretty much unchallenged. Oh, definitely. Though, I mean, yeah, it's definitely easy to scapegoat Santorum because he obviously, you know, was, I mean, it's really stupid of him to say. Uh, and, and you're definitely right that, that there's certainly a lot of people making that assumption that never get challenged. Though I would argue that, you know, this Rick Santorum doing it and then people publicly challenging that assumption you know, could be a very good learning opportunity for the many well-meaning people who hold that assumption, not realizing it's an incredibly problematic assumption to hold. Perhaps, perhaps. Teaching moments, pedagogical moments, if you will. There's also a lot of stuff in how Occupy has come together and fallen apart that kind of hang on this issue, I think, as well. Uh, Which issue, exactly? The issue of people, you know, speaking for various communities and... Right. A, a you, lot of there's been a lot of discussion about of the sort of decolonize. Um, that's part of it. Just the or... degree to which Occupy has been, you know, people have gone back and forth on saying that it's arguing about the extent to which it represents the people in whatever way that the people was being used. Um, especially when they deal with issues of inequality or issues of race or issues of sexuality. Um, occasionally issues of gender, but once again, you don't see that as often as you should. What is this decolonized thing? Really quick. So, you know, it's being called Occupy insert city here. Uh, and I know it's been a big debate in Oakland, but it's been a debate other places in that, you know, especially say for indigenous people of America, um, or, you know, many people throughout the world, Occupy signifies a very bad thing. You know, <laughs> Occupy is not a pleasant, you know, term like the being occupied by people. Um, and so there's been an argument that, the you know, it's a very it, essentially racist in much of the way we're talking about in that it's well-meaning people who didn't consider their actions, essentially, you know, um, and, and ended up using a term that is very offensive to, to, peop- to some people. Um, and so there's an argument that, you know, we should, the term should be changed, should be more like, you know, decolonize, um, in the fact that, you know, we want to get the Im- imperialist out, you know, kind of idea. So that's, I mean, it's obviously way more nuanced than that, but that's the incredibly short version of it. Yeah. I'm actually fairly unsympathetic to their, to their it, claims, but, it, uh, it does, the decolonize claim. I think there yeah. is a, a continuity here between the the topics where this focus on words as being so, I mean, I, I, this is just my general, you know, uh, people pay a lot of attention to words, right? Like specific it's words. It's all Wittgenstein and Derrida. Yeah. And, and, and you do this little dance where you're just continually changing the meaning, you know, the words that you use every so often to avoid um, being contaminated by bad mean, you know, and it's just, I, I don't know. Uh, that wasn't a particularly, I don't know. Chris, you could probably explain that better to me since you started naming big fancy names. I don't know if I want to. Oh. I mean, no, I was thinking of all these. I mean, we're dancing around the borders of all these postmodern concepts, like the death of the author and 
and all sort of deconstruction and all sorts of stuff like that. I don't think it's really worth getting into it. But I, I think, I mean, I, my read is still that, that fundamental question of one of the classic things you see in a lot of syllabi or, or professors talking to their students is you should talk in this class. The class is going to be much more useful and friendlier and better for all involved if you share your opinions, share your ideas, right? Sure. And part of the reason, part of the difficulty is getting students to step beyond the really personal aspects of that, to realize that the things they say, that, that class should be a safe space to talk about ideas, and you are not the things that you say in class, right? Because the whole sure. issue is students have these reputations they want to protect. If they do say something that might be considered racist or sexist or or whatever, however offensive or incorrect it might be, then that's something that will give them a reputation that will ruin them, um, that they'll be seen as stupid, whatever it might be. And this is, if you're instructing the class, kind of a terrible thing to come up against. Yeah, I, again, sorry, it just reminded me of an anecdote, but... No, and often, good yeah, well, often, you know, because I teach criminology courses, uh, and obviously one of my, as people have probably guessed if they've ever heard me speak on this podcast before, one of the things I really push is that, you know, the person commonly defined as criminal is not really the biggest danger to our society, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I always go through and have students do a little, you know, ex- exercise, you know, when I say criminal, you know, who do you think of? Like, break down, give me everything, you know? What, how old are they, you know, what do they look like, how tall are they, you know, like, are they male or female, where does this happen, and blah, blah, and everybody can give me just an incredibly detailed description of their hypothetical criminal until I ask for the race, and then all of a sudden, like, these, I mean, these criminals are just like, you know, you can paint a picture in your mind with the amazing details students are giving, and then you're like, and, and what race are they, and then they're always like, uh, any race, I, I wasn't. <laughs> they were thinking they were wearing a mask and gloves. Particular, you know. And I mean, I, I, I finally once I, uh, I was just like, okay, can anybody, anybody, just like, just shout out? You don't have to raise your hand. Like you were thinking of, and somebody's like, they're ethnic, you know. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what that means because everybody has an ethnicity, but I, I think you mean like they have darker skin. And thank you for offering it because clearly everybody else wanted to, but they weren't going to, you know. Um, and it's exactly what you're talking about, right? Because again, you know, racist is a bad thing in all capital letters. So if you admit that you're one of the clearly many, many people who I said criminal and you assumed a person of color, um, you know, you can't, you can't say that. Right. Yeah. And, and... which is both good and bad. (laughs) Well, what do you mean good and bad? Well, it's good that students have clearly gotten the message that this is probably not something they should say. It's probably not something that's correct. Hopefully they think that and not just something they shouldn't say, but bad in that because they can't say it, we can't talk about it. Right. And then it pushes this sort of obviously problematic colorblind rhetoric and so on and so forth. Precisely. Um, so exactly. you never actually talk about the issues. Yeah, and, and you I mean, also just... let people off the hook really easily. Like I, I can't – and this is – I mean maybe it's too moral for people, but – I can take issue with someone for doing something or saying something, but I'm not going to take issue with someone for the essence of their being, right? So I can take issue with with <laughs> with someone doing something, saying something racist, and then we can talk about that thing, and it can be a teachable moment. But if I understand them as just too far gone, all you are is a racist, the conversation's over, that doesn't really do much, right? It's not a teachable moment, and that's what I'm geared towards looking for. 
Precisely. And the question is, to what extent are we going to allow those teachable moments in public discourse? And I know it's a very problematic thing, but that's sort of what needs to happen, right? And you would think that a presidential election season would lead to them. <laughs> wouldn't wouldn't you, you'd, you'd hope and pray. It actually reminds me of a, a Louis C.K. bit. This might be going a bit far afield, but he has this bit, and this is my you know warning that this bit gets a little uh, NSFW. I'm going to avoid the naughty language, but it un- covers uncomfortable topics. Um, She's going blue. But but he has a bit where he talks about how you know he said where he you know he makes this dark joke that he says you know we'd probably have less kids getting murdered if we weren't so mean to child molesters you know and he, he goes in this whole bit where he's talking about like you know child molesters are the worst people in the world and like look at all these horrible things we do to them you know so he's like so of course if you like molest a child like you're gonna kill him right like this i mean your life's over if anyone finds out you know and he's like the ironic thing is you know we'd probably have less dead children if we are nicer to child molesters um and uh, obviously that's going, like, way far afield. But it, it's this sort of same process, right, that, like, you know, it's a horrible, horrible thing. But by turning it into some – but, like, again, with racism, by turning it into instead of, like, you know, you screwed up and did a bad thing that hurts people. Like, you know, let's learn from that and not do it again. Instead, it's you are a bad person, you know, and that's useless, right? Right, yeah. Chris Rock has a bunch of great material on that, as does Chappelle, so – Sure. That's more specific to race. Probably would have been a lot better than my horrible time. But I mean, it's exactly. But then again, I mean, those those comedians who've talked about the material in this way have run into serious problems. Like Chris Rock did it did it in a famous routine that, on the one hand, made his career, and on the other hand, incensed him because he, the ramifications of that bit kind of went out of his control. Chappelle, for the same are you, reason... Are you possible you, to reference that bit yeah. in any way? It has a title that I'm unfamiliar with saying, which should indicate what the bit is. It's uh, uh, N-word versus black people is the famous yeah, bit. Okay, that's kind yeah. of what I thought you were saying, referencing, but... Yeah. So, yeah. on the one hand, you know, he, he got his point across, he became one of the biggest comics in, in the nation. On the other hand, and he addressed this in later albums and, and you know interviews, you know, the the reaction to that he felt was it gave white people uh, a reason, an acceptable way to use that word. Well yeah. And he totally. couldn't believe I mean, that that's what happened. And Chappelle did the same thing with his show. He did a lot of racial humor that again was seen as brilliant and insightful and so on and so forth. And he walked away from, you know, tens of millions of dollars and, and all of it because he thought the consequences of that material were getting out of hand where people were talking about this stuff, but not understanding what he was trying to do with it. How did they misunderstand? Um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but to the best of my recollection, it was, you know, he was using, you know, talking about stuff that was specific to, you know, um, how African-Americans talk or specific to ghetto language or whatever it might be. Um, that used a lot of that language, talked about those topics but when white people then tried to imitate them, they didn't really understand the cultural background or the, the intent of those pieces. They just repeated those words, and they had a reason to do it without consequence. Like, we're just doing this funny thing we saw on TV. And it's just being funny, right? It's not being racist. Right, yeah. And he's, he's, you know, I remember him talking about the Will John stuff, where that got really annoying, because people would just scream that at him and his family when they were around places. And this was his first clue that it might get out of hand. And then as it got more to the racial stuff, he kind of 
felt really uncomfortable with it. Right. But I was going to say that uh, the Chris Rock sketch you were referencing was a great example of your point because I, I haven't heard it from students lately, but I remember when I was in college and it was much more recent, I, I don't know how many racist white people I heard quoting that sketch as essentially as an excuse for their racism, you know? Yeah. Like, I just, just talked to – okay. I don't have any problem with black people, but I got a problem with, you know. Right, um, yeah. And that allowed I, them to maintain their non-racist, you know, like self-esteem slash identity because, you know – they don't. They don't hate all black people. They just yeah, hate just the ones that everyone agrees. You stereotype, right? Because yeah. Chris Rock is a black comedian. Everyone agrees this is just part of being a person. Not it's not a race thing. Similar yeah. things happen with you know kids I used to hang out with with gangster rap. Like it gave them excuses to talk about these things in extremely derogatory ways, without realizing what was going on. Even though eventually gangster rap became a caricature that was doing that anyway. Also, uh, this might be too much of a subject change. Have you guys – I've had this as a topic. I was going to talk about the new uh, fall TV shows, and then it's Ooh. no longer the fall. But uh, have you guys seen the show Two Broke Girls? Oh, have I? It <laughs> is terrible. Just terrible. And that's the most surprising thing to me, that they're getting away with that and not doing anything to change it. And it's still become the, the number one new show in the country. Oh, they're and they're doing the kind of ra- racial humor that went out of fashion in the early 70s. I mean, dude, I... And even after that. the break, even after the holiday break, when they were showing reruns for a while, they came back with dude, another horrible stereotype. Even Mickey Rooney watches that show, and it's just like, whew, it's a little over the top, <laughs> folks. I it's mean, that's just, incredible. yeah, it's... It is, it is seriously one of those where the... I mean, I've seen a total of about one episode if you culminate all the times I've happened to leave the TV on. And I mean, I, but the first time I sat down, I was going to like try to give it a chance. Um, Cause I'd heard some good stuff about it from, I don't know where but people were TV critics were so high on the show before it aired because yeah. they liked the, the people involved. They liked the two leads. Right. Right. They were so, and then as I've heard so many critics or read so many critics take back their recommendation. And it was just, yeah, I mean the, like just the, I, I mean, I just remember thinking, like, is is this the year 2011? You know, like, I mean, just the... And who is, like... I always feel extra bad for the actors. Like, the the like the like actor who plays the generic Asian stereotype. Yeah. Um, like, man, that guy, it's 2011, and he still has to do that to get a job. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Jesus, man. Like, oh, it just, yeah, it, it, like, makes that became unacceptable man. after, who was it? The Donger and those, uh, yeah, and the those John, John Cusack Jesus movies. And stuff. Yeah, I mean, this is not, it's not new. <laughs> no, no, God, it's not new. At <laughs> I'm, all. I'm shocked that, that it still exists. Yeah. Yeah, no one, apparently no one said anything. And that's the really surprising thing. Like, you, you figure TV executives are, and, and creators are sensitive to these sorts of things. If not out of their own volition, at least because they have to deal with being accused of it so often, you'd think something might happen. But well, I mean, it might be... This is an interesting question. I mean, is it just that there is so much other absurdly outraging stuff going on right now, and there's these kind of big social movements on both the right and the left erupting about different things? Like, maybe there's just not... Like, maybe the the folks who would normally make this into a, like an issue are the other eyes occupied. No, they're decolonized. Oh, no pun intended, <laughs> um, but that was awesome. So oh, I oh, trademark. 
I've been reading about the show. I ha- I hadn't even heard. There's of our it. title. Um. Ah, uh, you've not experienced its wit. And, and the other thing too, I, I got to say, beyond the racism, the writing's terrible. It's it's not funny in the slightest. It's the writing's thing. terrible. The delivery is pretty awful. Oh, God, it's so, um, yeah, you're just waiting. And, and there's like, a lot of gender shot. stuff too, and class stuff that no one talks about because the racist stuff is so obvious. Yeah, the racist stuff is really. Obvious, I mean, but, the, yeah. my original reason for wanting to talk about TV shows was this was supposed to be the season of gender shows. I like how I get on, and you guys are talking about race, sexism, and TV again. It sort of summons you. It's racist. Sexism. Arturo says, Hark, I hear a discussion about televised racism. I must go. <laughs> sorry to interrupt. Or so sorry have you seen Two Broke so Girls, late, Arturo? But, uh, don't yeah. let me. So, yeah. No, I, I just meant Two What's the TV um, show? Don't. Here's what I want to know. So for the two people that have seen it, <laughs> is this an example of, there's this trend in, in TV. And we talked about this with a uh, modern family a little bit too. And I mean, modern family is not, doesn't you know but where yeah. saying having white characters say racist things in a in an ironic funny way is supposed to be funny and lighthearted and that's not right you know what i mean is that what's going on here or no no oh, it's not but, that yeah but this isn't what's going on no 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 this is like for example they, they wish that was the level they were they at. work these two girls work in a diner and the manager of the diner is like just a horrible caricature of an Asian. I don't know if they've ever given him a specific ethnicity because I don't watch it that closely, but I doubt it I'm, because he's just that broadly drawn. But, you know, he's like confuses the L's with R's and speaks super broken English. And then the cook is this like generic Eastern European stereotype who, of course, is like very hairy and wears gaudy gold chains and is like over-sexualized. I mean, just like all of the cast of characters are just these like horrible racial caricatures so no yeah. it's not the ironic racism it's just the straight up like isn't it funny that so... there are different people who do things differently which is strange because the characters are supposed to be ironic the show is situated in a neighborhood that's supposed to be Williamsburg the sort yeah. of hipster capital so they're pushing against the boundaries of, of dealing with that but just going straight for the classic who are the, who are the bigotry before anyone said girls, anything right? style of racism Yep. Yeah, but it's everyone around them that's a racist caricature. <laughs> because, dude, John, I mean, they're certainly not going to give a person of color the lead on the show if they're not even going to give them a believable human being to play. Yeah. So, well, I'm glad that we've had a thorough discussion of two bro girls <laughs> when Sorry, I'm, half I'm of people now in attendance at the moment. never I, seen the I, show. Yeah. So oh, this is how I want to point out that this is how interesting <laughs> our podcast is. That even people on the podcast, while it's being recorded, I was paying attention. I was learning. I was doing some research here. Tell us what you think. Email podcast at the society Exactly. Are there any new shows that are actually worth watching this fall? Um, this year, I've <laughs> kind of only family. paid attention to the bad ones. That's not a new show, though. I know it's new it's to me. Though. Like third season, second or it? third season. Yeah, I'm a little behind the times. You used to, <laughs> have you heard of The Wire, Arturo? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Like, heard show. The Wire. I get The Wire. I actually got to say though, uh, there's a new show that debuted last night. I think. Go ahead, Jesse. No, no, no you're on a roll. Go, go. 
I'm trying to. I'm looking up the name of it because I forgot what it was. So. You oh man, my my quip was so ready. I was just about to launch <laughs> into like this polished. I mean, it's like radio business up in this piece. And you're like, oh, I really want to talk about this thing that I heard. Of. I don't know what it is. Listen to me breathe for a few minutes while John wades through IMDb. I never. You guys ever or watch uh, Breaking Bad? <laughs> watch what? Breaking Bad. I have watched. I watched the first episode. Ever, and that oh. was it. It's been recommended ad nauseum, but I have yet to see it. It's an yeah, excellent show. It's is it worth continuing to watch? Because I wasn't a huge fan of it at first. Everyone says this last season was one of the best seasons of any TV show ever. Yeah, it was. It was really good, actually. And it's I, you know, John, it took a, it takes a while to to uh, build up, and it was clearly written in a way where you know it takes like five seasons to chronicle kind of this guy's story. You know, he's a high school physics or chemistry teacher who has cancer and starts selling meth to um, pay for his medical bills. But then that kind of uh, becomes less part of the narrative of why he's doing it. And he slowly becomes kind of a full on drug dealer. Um, And, you know, his character changes and he's kind of becomes an ugly person and, you know, takes revenge on people and all under this guise that he's he's forced into the situation. It's it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's kind of just a story about how somebody changes. Um, See, dude, I don't know. I got I got most of that in the first episode. That was the thing. I watched the first episode and I kind of <laughs> thought this was a nice little short movie. I'm happy with the way this ended. I don't really know if I want to watch anymore. Well, it, it, it reminded me. It reminded me of Weeds, only substitute a nerdy chemistry teacher for Nancy Botwin and substitute oh, meth for weed, and neither I of those hate, are good trades. I hate that show, actually. I, I used to really like Weeds. I liked oh, it the went first downhill. Episode. It went and downhill. Then I just got annoyed with the character. Like, I actually hated the character, the main character. And yeah, but like, how can you? But that's, that's, that's actually, I agree. I feel the same way. But that's why I couldn't watch Breaking Bad. I'm like, I'm not going to like this guy. <laughs> I, I I like him because he's he's a dorky guy. He's not. There's no guise of him trying to be cool at any one point, and he's he's kind of a pathetic character, and you feel sorry for him. And then, even though you feel sorry for him, he does these kind of horrible things, and you're kind of confused whether or not you're rooting for him. Like, you know, he's dealing with bad guys who are trying to kill him most of the time, and uh, he's, and they're worse than he is, right? So of course you want to be, you know. Yeah, but then you kind of. Step back and you go. Well, he's being kind of crappy himself. I mean, he, there's no real good cause of why he's doing what he's doing, and like especially this last season. Well, so this last season had this whole Mexico arch, you know, like uh, in terms of you know a lot of the drugs come from Mexico, and so him making his own supply of meth raises concerns with different cartels in Mexico, and um, I don't know. Pretty interesting stuff, him going to Mexico and dealing with these drug leaders and, and so forth. Anyway, and it's, this last season, it was pretty, um, uh, I don't know, pretty intense um, because he basically develops this persona that if you're going to sell drugs, you can't do it halfway. you got to do it full way, and you got to be ruthless, and you got to be better than the guy next to you. you know? uh, you got to kill them before they kill you kind of mentality, and uh, – and that's when you kind of stop and, like, you're not sure who you're rooting for, you know, because any time you watch a show, you always kind of think the main character is a good guy that you're trying to root for. But the show kind of, I don't know, makes it so that you kind of question that. That's that's what I meant by comparing it to Weeds. It's like like Dexter 2 or something. There's this these kind of shows where yeah. 
take a main character who's doing something questionable and let's see how far we can push it. How how bad can we make them before people still, you know, and, and have people still identify with them? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the weeds thing, they just did it in a way where you instantly got annoyed with her because she had a, a certain amount of privilege coming from suburbia and, and she's kind of dealing with people who sell drugs at the level of the underclass, but she's kind of like cutesy and makes jokes and you're like, you know, it's kind of awful. <laughs> Some of the things that she was doing and I, I just didn't find it as, as funny. And I was like, you know, I don't, don't care for this show. I know like at some point, like the suburbs burned down and she goes to San Diego, but I didn't follow it that. that uh, it got way. I followed it one season after that and it was two seasons too many. Does it still exist? Is it still going on? Uh, I think it will be going on long after I'm dead. <laughs> That's the problem. Successful TV shows they have a good they have a good story for like a season, and then after that, you know, because you know they can't plan really beyond that. I have to say, haven't and we had this exact we discussion? Have. We yeah. have. Yeah, yeah. Right. it's like the BBC and shows. Oh, you're right. The B- that wasn't here. Yeah, you're right. I remember the that. Office that runs for two seasons and. I know. So. Sorry, sorry for re- being redundant. Wait, that's have you not guys heard about either. the uh, Work It, which premiered last night? I've heard quite a bit about it. I definitely did not end up watching it. I ended up watching it. Oh, oh that's about it. Pray that tell. looks awful. Sorry. It's, <laughs> What's it called? The, it's the TV show that everyone is shocked that it got made. It's called Work It. It's on ABC. It is Work a it. redone Bosom Buddies. That's where right. Where two unemployed friends end up dressing as women to get jobs as pharmaceutical representatives oh because God. the economy has hit them very hard. Because we're in a man session. Right. Yeah. Right. And then uh, this will help the one guy uh, identify and learn about his wife and teenage daughter, presumably. And it's it really, really bad. And everyone... But it's got the dude from prison break. Is that where he's from? Yeah, yeah. The which guy is one from Prison Break? I never watched Prison Break. I don't. The shaved-headed dude. I don't know his okay. name. Okay. Yeah, I don't know his name either. I don't know anyone's name associated with the show, and I'm sure after a couple weeks, <laughs> I'm not going to learn them. <laughs> they're not going to want to be associated with it either. Um, no one ever thought it was a good idea. As soon as it was floated as something they might work on, people said, "Someone at ABC is going to shut this down. They're not going to let this happen." And then, sure enough, here it is. Um, Though, in a slight restoration of my faith of the American people, it, it was the worst-rated debut of the entire season. Was it? I didn't see the ratings info yet. Uh, I, I read a little quip about it this morning. So, or, I don't know, whatever day it was after dirt. So, yeah, I mean, at least, you know, yeah, people I have don't know some discernment. I mean, I don't know how... It's just... I don't know how anyone thought that it would be a good idea. You know, one show I've been... Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, it's it's done. Well, this is going to be completely <laughs> dorky, but a show that I've been getting into with this just last week, and this is almost <laughs> shameful to admit, but uh, Battlestar Galactica. What are you the, ashamed, uh, uh, what are you ashamed of to admit? The new one or the old one? The new one. Oh, it's a great show. What are you talking it about? Is, Dude, that's is, like hip and trendy, man. Yeah, that's, not, that's nothing to be ashamed of. I... You know, it was re- recommended on my Netflix thing. Like Buck Rogers, the 1980 version, if there's another version, was recommended. And I watched an episode of that, and I was like, this is awful. But then it had this Battlestar Galactica, the the remake, I guess. It's really good. And uh, 
it's it seems like I know that like good science fiction is the kind of you know stories that make you question the social political context of today, but like it it really does a good job like issues of terrorism and military versus democracy institutions and um yeah i'm i'm almost embarrassed mentioning it so i'm glad it's not uh also such a bad thing speaking of Battlestar galactica i don't watch it um but i'm familiar with it because i have a lot of nerdy friends but uh did anybody else notice so there's this like environmental report that perhaps the earthquakes or that most likely the earthquakes in ohio were caused by fracking uh, ah. which if I understand from my limited Battlestar Galactica knowledge means something very specific. Um, yes, they're saying fracking all the time. That's true. Certainly, <laughs> certainly made me giggle quite a bit in seeing all those things about fracking causing earthquakes. Yeah, at first I thought there was like some kind of environmental, like, wow, these guys are ahead of the time. They're talking about fracking here and fracking that. Like it's become a catch word, catchphrase in the future, you know, because fracking is such a bad thing. But I guess it's just... Ah, you think it takes place in the future, do you? It turns out I was wrong about that, yeah. Whoa, spoiler alerts, dude. <laughs> it just takes place in Ohio. That's exactly it. But, man, like, I was up till one thirty watching uh, Battlestar Galactica last night, and my fiancé was like, you went to bed late. What were you doing? Were you, like, looking at porn or something? And, <laughs> and you're like, yes. I didn't want to tell her about Battlestar Galactica, so yeah. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> this was a very pop. This, I mean, it's done. This was a very popular show. I mean, this was not it was like critically acclaimed. Yeah, this, this is right, not something yeah. to be ashamed of. It's kind of like the wire in space. <laughs> wow, I'm I'm surprised. I mean, it came out like what 2006 or something like that, 2005, uh, something like that. It, it was like yeah. four seasons, three seasons. Some of them were short. I'm not sure. Something like that. Yeah. Can I say one more show. thing about Work It? Yeah. Sorry. One yeah. more thing about Work It. It, Jesse, you said it opened to terrible ratings. It 6.1 million viewers tuned in, and it got a 2.0 rating share. And this is a show that no one believed in, that everyone thought was going to be a total disaster. Two of the best comedies on TV, Community and Parks and Recreation, don't even come close to those numbers. Right, so That's right, how right. bad it is for TV right now. Yeah. <laughs> At least broadcast TV. Intelligently written shows that rely on a smart audience are never going to have an audience. So, I mean, using those as a touchstone is, you know, just foolish. Uh. That's like saying, well, <laughs> this, you know, this Thomas Pinchon novel fails to even get close to the numbers of the latest X popular band. Look, look how out of touch I am. I can't even name a current popular <laughs> band. I've a lot of units. But, you know, it, apples and cats is what I'm saying here. Sure, sure. I was shocked. Being on planes a lot recently, how many people still read Grisham and Clancy? Oh yeah, really? Like, I thought they stopped publishing Don't books a long James time ago. Yeah, do they still make <laughs> books, or are they just like recycling? Are people stuff? just now finding out about Hunt for Red they making a, They're making a. Speaking of television shows, though, I believe they're working on, or they will soon be unveiling a show based on. Yeah, the, the firm. firm. Yeah. So yeah, man, that, the a, Grish has staying power. I, I read this thing a, a few years ago. I, I probably couldn't find it if I tried on James Patterson. I mean, he has like a whole, like his books are collaborative. Like he has like a whole team of writers that oh, are like, oh, that yeah, are James saw, Patterson. So that's yeah, why he puts a, out like several books a year. Yeah, there was an article in the New York Times about his whole like production process. Like you're right. It's like an army of writers. <laughs> well, it's just kind of like, uh, I saw a very That's what Jim Davis did with Garfield. Like, yeah, or like Thomas Kincaid, the painter. Yeah. Or like the many. It's a really good, uh, I was just having a discussion. Did, did we talk about Exit Through the Gift Shop before? We haven't. 
I mean, I've recommended it before, but we, I don't think we actually talked about it. Oh, okay. I, well, about I was talking about something else, but it raises the same thing, too, uh, for those who have seen it. Um, the guy who ends up becoming famous, Mr. Famous, or what's his name? Mr. Brainwash. <laughs> Mr. Brainwash. Yeah, Mr. Brainwash, yeah. But yeah, he is the exact same thing. He doesn't ever actually make anything. He just like tells his assistants. And then, of course, but he gets the whatever, $3 million. Um, but I was just having a very heated argument with somebody the other day about this. Like, you know, that's absurd that that like I could be a talented artist if I just had to like tell people who actually did it what I wanted them to make. I got I could be like, hey, make me a cool painting. Like I can do that. I have a documentary for you to watch. What's that? It's called The Trap. The Trap? Yeah, it's a BBC documentary. Is that one of the Adam Curtis documentaries? It is. It is. Yeah, I, I, I've either seen it or want to see it. I get all of this confused because they're all very similar. <laughs> yeah, Adam, I, I never heard of Adam Curtis before. I, then I started watching his other stuff like on Self and Society. And He's got, really did good. you see his newest one? Uh, it's called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. No. It's kind of a mess of a title, but it's it's really good. It makes some interesting connections. There's also a really fantastic um, parody of Adam Curtis documentaries that someone posted to YouTube, I believe. I'll have to check if it I out. If I can find the link, I'll send it to you. It's He's criticizing it. I still like Adam Curtis, but the parody is spot on. So it's a, it's a really nice critique. He's uh, I, I showed it in my theory class last semester, and it was uh, really well received. And it's, it was kind of funny because the, it's a three series documentary and it really like the conclusion is kind of disappointing but it really builds up this awesome um survey of like social theories of the last 20th you know 30 40 years and uh you know what is this you're talking about it's this documentary called the trap and this idea that like modern ideas of freedom uh are really predicated on this false conception of choice in the free market that doesn't really exist and we are living and in that's this pretty much all of his stuff uh, like I, I can tell that he's like working through stuff um his he, thesis throughout most of his documentaries is what you just said yeah i, I, I kind of <laughs> but he touches upon really interesting research from biology to like economics to you know anthropologists studying yeah, you know, like, yeah it goes all over the place and is this uh, something i can watch online yeah. It should be all over yeah. YouTube. But my students really liked it. They just felt really depressed afterwards. And I had this weird situation That's at the end of the like semester. Yeah, a bunch of students came up to me at, after the last lecture, and they, like, clapped, and they're all nice. I was like, oh, great. And they're like, so what's the solution? <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> oh, uh didn't think you guys are paying attention that closely. But, yes, uh, <laughs> any perception of choice is – pure false consciousness and you guys are all trapped and there's nothing you can possibly do. And they're like, but we're graduating and we're, <laughs> we're doing all these different things and I want to be a cop and I'm going to be a nurse and I want to work for a nonprofit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, you should do those things. But be critical that you're not having any impact whatsoever. You know, like it was a 
interesting thing and they actually like stayed like an hour after class and wow. uh yeah <laughs> and i was because i didn't want to make them super depressed and i was like you know it's it's a marathon like you can't let this stuff overwhelm you you know to the extent that this helps you keep an open mind to things that's good but don't get overly depressed as well um but the movie really like got to them um and it kind of solidified, you know, a lot of the theories that they're reading, especially the Foucault stuff that they didn't really get the first time around. Yeah, but they yeah. Really dug it. So I don't know. It was like I will show this movie again, <laughs> but I have to think a little bit more seriously about like some concluding remarks for my class. I yeah, really you, could, you could take the cop out. Well, awareness of the condition is is, is a starting place. Yeah. <laughs> we need to first understand the world before we can solve it. You know, like... Social science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I had this one kid who was joining the police academy. He was like, yeah, but I'm joining the police academy, you know, next month. And I want to be like a socially aware cop and blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, just don't let these theories get you killed, man. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't be a cop. <laughs> I know that's what I said. I was like, "Here's my suggestion: don't be a cop." And he like looked at me, and I was like, uh, "I don't know, dude. I don't know what I'm saying. Just <laughs> please leave." <laughs> it was weird, but they were just like all around me, and they're like, you know, graduating seniors, and they wanted me to to tell them what to do, and you know, that's not. You're not a counselor, I don't know. man. I'm not a counselor, and. I totally did feel like a cop out actually because I didn't have anything prepared and anytime I started saying something I realized like how absurd it was you know but I'm glad that it made them think you know and I, I don't know yeah yeah good movie just choose your uh, choose a social problem that you care about with a, a definite path of action and push yeah. everything on that <laughs> that's a good idea that's a good idea actually I mean, I'm sure you can make the connections, so it's a bit of a con job, but a worthwhile one. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. This is a whole different topic, but, you know, it's like, well, these are the ideas of us who don't do anything. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these are important ideas, but we're telling them important because we don't do anything. So, but I'm, I think you should think about these ideas, but not too much. Because yeah, I felt bad for this kid, especially the cop kid. You know, I was like, "Yeah, there's no I'm, way you're gonna keep this critical edge to you, man. You gotta like, you know, follow rules and arrest people who don't follow rules. I mean, your job's not to judge laws. Your job is to enforce laws. Or, you know, you're giving up on the enlightenment Am version I? of. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. I mean, the whole, you know, did, well, did you use the Gertais theory books, the Calhoun? I did. Yeah. So there's that that comp piece in the beginning, right? What is enlightenment? And this mm -hmm. whole thing is is uh, you know the the free use of your public reason, independent of your occupation, and so on and so forth. It's that idealized version of the public sphere that never actually existed. But oftentimes you'll see, especially academics, look for solutions according to those lines. Yeah, but I I think it's a little patronizing to be like, um, I mean I don't know if, I don't know if we want to take it in this direction, but. To, to have that attitude that, uh, no, you shouldn't ask those hard questions because you're going to be a cop and you got to go out in the world and function as a cop. And if you, you just be, you're just going to hate yourself and be miserable if you're so critical of what you're doing. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't, you go, 
I mean, yeah, maybe, what maybe I said it's a little was clearer with the cop, but it, that's pretty much true for anyone. Uh, but I said, like, he needs to figure out how these theories are helpful for him, and he can't be looking for me to tell him that because I don't know what it's well, like yeah. to do, you know? And I was like, if you can find an application of these ideas to your work, then I think that's great. But you're also going to be working in a different environment, and I think one will experience, like, oh, these ideas are just a waste of time, and I don't think you should do that. But, you know, you're going to have to operate in this very regimented way. Where these ideas might be confusing. I don't know. I mean, I, I see what you're saying, John. It is kind of patronizing just to say, well, <laughs> you're a lost cause. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to give you a taste of true intellectual freedom <laughs> before you go. I, to take Arturo aside, kind of, I do take seriously the notion that we, we shouldn't be the ones who tell them what to do. Yeah, I, I wasn't. Like, I wasn't the whole point is to get them to be able yeah. to figure it out for themselves. Yeah. I yeah. To, to tell them past a certain point is... No, I really was, overstepping our, our boundary. I wasn't saying that. I wasn't. I wasn't no, I know objecting you to not uh, giving the was, answer, but objecting to like, yeah, I feel kind of bad for making you confront these tough questions that are just going to make your life more difficult. You know, that's if if that's even what you were saying. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I'm kind of saying that, but I feel like I didn't realize that I gave them such a convincing case that like <laughs> ideas of freedom are, you know. Uh, non-existent and you know structure will always dominate your life and you know i i gave them this reading by uh, zygmunt bauman at the end of the gertais reader about like the holocaust and the the uh kind of use of a critical perspective to question you know assumption as about modernity and you know advancements and how we you know pursuit of a perfect society can be like the reasons that we do all atrocious things to other human beings and you know we need to continually examine you know progress towards what and and those kind of big questions but the trap movie the message there really was that like our ideas of freedom are you know false and anytime that you think you're free you know you're just being delusional and i didn't think that they would so grab onto that and i you know <laughs> and to me it's, it's a cool analysis i was like great interesting analysis but to them it was like i thought i was going to go change the world but now i feel like i can't and uh you know i was like well i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> it's really awesome that you had that kind of response whenever i've taught those topics i've always had a few students get really into them and they've had that kind of experience where this was a real epiphany moment for them to change the way they thought about the world. But to have most of the class or all of the class get into that is pretty cool. So yeah. good job. Yeah, I did. Oh, thanks. But I think it was the mostly the movie. I mean, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> uh, I got to find some movie. And I Googled like Foucault and, um, and Fanon. I, I had a reading of Fanon and I wanted to give them a little bit of context of that. And uh, he has a good description of Fanon actually. Um, because, you know, Fanon is kind of a tragic character and he calls for outright violence, you know, as a way of emancipating yourself. And I wanted to like, the Gertais reading the book doesn't really like deal with that, you know, and I wanted to tell the students, Hey, you know, even if you don't believe in Fanon's radical vision of violent overthrow of the white class, there's still some use to this readings. You know, it talks about having a critical awareness and, the trap had a, a a nice clip about it um and kind of how fanon was a little bit overboard about his predictions of what would happen after um 
you know, after they overthrow the colonial powers, everything would be great. And so I, I, I was just showing that clip, but then I just kind of let it go, and uh, the students really dug it. And so I showed the other half of the movie, and then, you know, that was the end of the class. And I was like, wow, it's, you know, it was good stuff to talk <laughs> about, but it wasn't my lecturing. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it made, it made me think that, like, okay, I need to think seriously about this question. And, I mean, it was good talking to you about it just now because I didn't know what to say. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Can't believe you guys took this so seriously that you want to stay. <laughs> I was like, I, just, I want a cookie from the cafeteria. <laughs> Can we wrap this up? <laughs> like the kid's head like looked like a big cookie, and I was like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> Joke. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, Curtis's stuff is worth checking out, the rest of it. And also, um, I think I've pushed him before, but Charlie Brooker, who's more okay. of a pop culture Adam Curtis, who relies on a lot of Curtis's material and occasionally has segments that Curtis does for his shows, is also good. His stuff's all over YouTube as well. Broker, you uh, said? Brooker, Charlie Brooker. His shows are Screenwipe, which is about TV and movies, Newswipe, which is about the news. He just put out something that apparently is on YouTube called 2011 Wipe. It's like a year-end review show. Everything uses the wipe thing. But he also has a show called The Black Mirror that's a dramatization of these kind of ideas and another show called how TV is ruining your life. All worth hmm. checking out. Hmm. Cool. Yeah. I, I'm like, man, documentaries can do a really good job of this stuff. You know, I um, always wanted to have like a, uh, maybe that's a topic we could do in the future, but to talk about the kind of, you know, documentaries or music or whatever mixed media you use for certain classes to talk about certain topics. Because I yeah. always felt like my stuff was getting really old and I needed new ideas. So that could be a cool topic. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. Because um, I think Curtis is like a great find. Like he clearly has done a lot of studying of these ideas and he takes them seriously and but can present them in a pretty persuasive way, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. If you uh, – The Century of the Self is one he did about advertising. Yeah, I saw – I was seeing a couple of minutes of that. It looked, that looked yeah, really good actually. I don't know if you teach like – the culture industry or anything like that would be a good fit. Yeah, no, I, I, I was thinking we, we do a whole section on the theories of the self, and I thought there probably is something there that I could use. Maybe.